According to Alan Jenkins, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, and other civil rights leaders used the traditional news media in a way where they reached millions of people across the country with a unified narrative. Today, he says, with the advent of digital and social media, we are in an era of narrowcasting versus broadcasting. With the evolution of social and digital media, the way we get our news today is drastically different from how we received information 10 or 20 years ago. As millions of individuals have the power to generate and disseminate content, traditional news outlets have less control or influence over the type, legitimacy, and sources of information that shape our worldviews. How do we stretch across the millions of hashtags, Twitter feeds, and TikTok videos to have meaningful discussions with those furthest from our social circles? How do we build shared values and advance social justice when most only follow, like, or retweet opinions they already agree with? I'm Sushma Raman, and this is Justice Matters. Joining us today is Alan Jenkins, professor of practice at the Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on race and the law, communications, and social justice. Prior to that, he was president and co-founder of the Opportunity Agenda, a social justice communications lab dedicated to the idea that our nation can and should be a place where everyone enjoys full and equal opportunity. Alan has had a long and distinguished career in civil rights, human rights, and philanthropy. Alan, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sushma. So you've had a fascinating career, and I'm wondering if you could just walk us through some of the highlights of your career in human rights. Yeah, I think I may be actually in career number five or six at this point. So uh, I graduated from Harvard Law School many years ago and worked as a law clerk, uh, first to a federal district court judge, Robert Carter, who was one of the lawyers who litigated Brown versus Board of Education way back in the day. And then I was a law clerk to Justice Harry Blackmun on the U.S. Supreme Court. And then did what I had always planned to do, which was to be a civil rights lawyer at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And I did that for about five years, working on cases at the intersection of race and class. Uh, So a lot of my work had to do with representing black communities who were facing uh, economic discrimination or being displacement, being pushed off of their traditional land and the like. It was a fantastic job. I was there, as I say, about five years. And then I went to the Justice Department. This was during the Bill Clinton administration and was working at the office of the Solicitor General of the United States. So I was representing the United States government before the U.S. Supreme Court and then left to become first the uh, racial justice program officer at the Ford Foundation and then director of human rights at the Ford Foundation. Over the course of those different jobs, it really became evident to me that as advocates in the U.S., for social justice and human rights, we were really not taking communications seriously as a change strategy. Uh, Despite the fact that no real transformative change has happened in the US or really almost anywhere without a role for strategic communications and of cultural strategies. So if you think about the US civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, strategic use of the news media by activists, 
the role of artists and creatives, uh, you know, Harry Belafonte or, you know, Mahalia Jackson or what have you, uh, was always part of how we moved hearts, minds and policy and how we made it stick. You know, when I was a litigator, I would win a case or the, the Legal Defense Fund would win a case. The victory would be swept away by uh, a ballot initiative, for example, because we had not even explained, much less convinced the public, that they should sustain and enforce those victories on criminal justice reform or voting rights or, and the like. And so I, I stepped out with three other people to co-found the Opportunity Agenda which is a social justice communication lab, really utilizing those communications and cultural strategies hand in hand with other folks in the social justice ecosystem who are using litigation or community organizing or research or policy advocacy to tell a more powerful story. The organization's main initiatives are on criminal justice reform, immigrant human rights, and economic opportunity, really poverty, but with issues of race and ethnicity and gender cutting through and across all of those. And so the idea was really to work together to shift the narrative on those issues and on the way our nation governs, as well as how people treat each other. And so the organization continues on, but a year ago, I left the opportunity agenda to join the Harvard Law School faculty uh, full-time as a professor of practice, where I'm teaching courses on communication, law, and social justice, which was my old beat, as well as race and the law and Supreme Court jurisprudence. Terrific. I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about communication strategies and how they have evolved in the age of digital campaigns. I'd imagine that when you first began this work, a lot of organizing, litigation, advocacy efforts were being done in a more concrete way. And now we're moving to virtual networks of people mobilizing both themselves and others, allies, if you will, around various causes. So how has your work shifted over the past uh, several years? When we first founded the Opportunity Agenda uh, almost 15 years ago, the main communication strategies were about the news media, and popular culture, meaning primarily you know, Hollywood strategies. Twitter did not exist. Instagram did not exist. Facebook was, I think, on a few college campuses at that time. And so very quickly, we had to adapt to a new environment in which news media and traditional you know, Hollywood is still a force to be reckoned with. It still moves hearts, minds, and policy but it has been complemented by social media and digital media, and the latter is gaining in its use and traction and influence as certainly journalism is starting, unfortunately, to flag in terms of its, its uh, mind share, if you will. And so we began to make that shift. And you know that change, that societal change, really global change, has positives and negatives for us as activists and advocates. So you know the news media, particularly in the 20th century and, and in the early 21st century, it had the benefit of reaching large numbers of people with kind of a unified narrative. So again, you think about how Martin Luther King Jr. and his allies, John Lewis and others, expertly used the news media uh, to win the Voting Rights Act when they crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge and you know, it was documented in the film Selma. 
but one of many critical moments like Alabama so-called public safety officers turning hoses on peaceful demonstrators. Those mass media moments reached almost the entire country and they were extremely influential. Now we're really in an era of uh, narrow casting rather than broadcasting, where it's much easier to reach people who agree with you. It's much easier to identify particular communities and reach them through social media and digital strategies with very low costs of entry, right? It's the first moment in human history in which most of us have the ability to reach millions of people and to hear back from millions of people. Uh, that never existed in, in the past. And so the news media are no longer the gateway to mass communications that they used to be, and they were sometimes problematic. But it's also the case that it's much harder for us to tell or experience a shared story across our nation or across the world. People who are consuming one type of Twitter feed or you know one news source are hearing a completely different version of the issues and of where our nation is headed than people who are consuming a different uh, Twitter news feed, uh, Twitter feed, pardon me, or news source. I, that's a big challenge, and it's something that we are still adapting to, but that the opportunity agenda quickly had to rise to and is, is helping to bridge the gap. That's fascinating. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this shared values and, and framing in a way that is inclusive. What are some tools that you've used, perhaps either around racial justice or immigration, that you have found useful? One of the challenges that we've often faced as advocates and you know, human rights and civil rights lawyers like myself are notoriously bad at this is we too often lead with you know, dry facts or statistics or you know, legalisms when we should be leading with shared values, the values that we share with the audiences that we're either trying to mobilize if they already agree with us or to convince if they're skeptics or they're on the fence. And so we will wade into conversations, you know, brandishing data and statistics and then be surprised when our audiences haven't been convinced. But a ton of uh, research and experience shows that people respond, especially on issues where they're not yet sure how they feel, to a story that's rooted in shared values, that is about solutions, and that tells them what they can do, or at least what can be done to make a difference. And so to your question, Sushma, one of the tools that, that the Opportunity Agenda uses is a messaging structure of value, problem, solution, action. What are the values, in other words, leading your message with the values that you share with your audience, then moving to the problem, which is the way in which we as a society or a community or a situation are falling short of those values. The solution, what can we do uh, to make the situation better because Americans are in no mood to hear about a new problem without hearing about how it can be solved. And then the action, what is it that you want your audience to do? And so it might be a big ask, like show up at a demonstration or come with us to Washington and lobby your member of Congress. But it might also be tell 10 friends, you know, post this on social media, you know, donate money, show up in your own local community and, uh, you know, ask questions at a town hall. So that structure of value, problem, solution, action is critical. And it's really a, a culture change for those of us who were trained as advocates 
to present the law and the data and the policy first. And it's a change for most human rights advocates who are often talking about international human rights instruments that most Americans, at least, have never heard of, don't understand, and don't particularly care about. So almost all of the communications trainings that the Opportunity Agenda does, and, and actually a lot of what I teach in my class at Harvard Law School, is how to utilize that structure. Data matters, the facts matter, but they need to be deployed within a narrative and a frame and a context that people can see themselves in and uh, attach themselves to. So can you walk us through an example? So if you were, for example, developing a campaign around uh, racial justice, how would you approach the framing for setting the values, defining the problem, recommendations, and so on? So let's use the example of uh, race in the criminal justice system, where we know that it's clear that there are systemic racial biases and discrimination at almost every level of the system, from policing to arrest and incarceration and sentencing and reentry of people leaving prison and jail. So often advocates currently, or at least you know, until recently, would lead with data right, with outcome data. So, you know, one out of every three young men of color in, you know, this city or, or that are in prison or jail. And assuming that their audience would conclude from that, that racial discrimination is the cause. But we know from a ton of public opinion research and focus groups and the like, that actually lots of undecided people will simply conclude that young men of color are more prone to violence or breaking the law. And so, Instead, we counseled at the Opportunity Agenda, and I do now as a professor, to begin with that value, problem, solution, action structure. So, for example, we need criminal justice systems and all systems that keep everyone safe, that prevent harm, and that uphold the values, the principles of equal justice and fairness and accountability. That's the value, right, which vast majority of audiences share. Problem is, we are falling far short of that standard. And then you need to actually explain some of the specific ways. In other words, don't assume that your audience will understand that if different communities are policed differently, if the police are aggressive and intrusive in a black community in a way that they are not in a white community, of course you're gonna end up with more people of color, more young men of color who are the most frequent targets in prison or jail. If, as is the case in many, many places around our country, young men of color, just to pick that group, but they're, they're not the only ones, are given stiffer sentences, are more likely to be sent to adult facilities, are more likely to be incarcerated rather than given alternative pathways, then, of course, you're, again, you're gonna have a higher concentration of white folks who have engaged in the same conduct, and which is what the data shows. That level of explanation is really important uh, so that people who are skeptics can understand, oh, you're not just saying that people of color are randomly or through their own behavior finding themselves in prison and that that's a problem. What you're saying is that there is a, a structural problem of unequal treatment and unequal justice uh, in our systems. And so, and there's a lot of data at every level of that. 
picking that data carefully, right? Not giving people 20 statistical points, but rather picking a couple of data points from sources that are credible often to your audience that explain the injustice that's occurring and how we're falling short of those values. Then moving to the solution, which of course has to be attuned to who your audience is and what you want them to do. We're seeing in communities around the country a move away from a focus on policing and incarceration and a move towards investment in prevention strategies, in mental health treatment, in drug counseling, in restorative justice to bring communities together when harm occurs instead of uh, harsh criminal justice approaches that actually worsen the harm. That's a, a potential solution. Then the action, right? What do I want my audience to do? So again, maybe I want them to just, you know, put that Black Lives Matter sign out on their yard, but maybe I want them to come to the next town hall meeting in their town to demand that greater resources are invested in those strategies of mental health treatment and restorative justice and the like, instead of in arrest and incarceration and often abusive treatment at the hands of public officials. So that Sushma is the value problem solution action. That solution piece is important in part. We had, we had an expression at the opportunity agenda. That there's a reason why Martin Luther King Jr.'s greatest speech was not called, I have a complaint. And that's because he understood you had to explain to people what the dream is uh, and then talk about how we're falling short and what we can do about it. This is very inspirational, I have to say. So you touched earlier on the fact that technology has played a role in amplifying these echo chambers where it's harder to create shared values and a shared vision. There's another role that I see technology playing now in the context of criminal justice, but in other aspects of rights that we are concerned with. And that is the increasing surveillance of people of color being done both by the police, but also private contractors, if you will, in, in cities like Baltimore and Detroit and Minneapolis. And often that technology, which costs a lot of money, taxpayer money, is then used in ways that really undermine the concept of equal justice. So everything from an algorithm that might determine sentencing to vast amounts of data that are being gathered about people in supposedly race-neutral ways, but they're not really race-neutral. How do you then think about this overlay as you think about your four-part framework? Well, I guess a, a couple of things. I mean, from a policy standpoint, we should be bringing an opportunity impact lens or a requirement to all of these laws and policies. In other words, uh, when something is proposed, for instance, risk assessments, which are you know, increasingly popular and also problematic for the reasons you describe, right? This, these are algorithms that are used to help determine in some places whether, for example, someone will get bail in a system where bail exists or whether they'll be released on their own, own recognizance, etc. We should be asking, do those have a discriminatory effect or do they help to enhance equal justice and equal opportunity. And if it's the former, if they are discriminatory in their operation, we should be looking for alternatives or fundamentally questioning whether the purpose that they serve is one that's important. So what, you know, what does that mean as a practical matter, using your example of the algorithms? 
you know, if an algorithm is asking questions in determining whether someone should have their freedom pending a charge or a, a trial or whether they should be incarcerated without even having been convicted of something, and an algorithm is asking questions like, do you have so-called stable housing? Have you been arrested before? Do you have a, a job in the community? Then we know that those criteria are bringing in all of the discrimination that exists in policing, in housing, in employment, in education. And therefore, although they are ostensibly race neutral, they in fact are discriminatory in operation and are not a valid way of determining who should be allowed to continue on with their lives while maintaining accountability and who should be locked up. So, you know, we should be asking, first of all, should we have these bail systems in the first place? And lots of places are moving away from bail and finding that, that that's an appropriate path. But second of all, before we adopt or even consider utilizing one of these algorithms, we need to be asking what are the criteria? And if those are discriminatory in effect, we need to be rejecting them. Uh, so from a, you know, a messaging standpoint, let's go back to this question of, you know, we need systems that keep all communities safe, that prevent harm, and that uphold the values of equal justice and accountability and fairness. Uh, many of the algorithms that, and, and risk assessment tools that are being proposed uh, do the opposite. They are not fair. They are discriminatory in operation. They cause harm instead of preventing harm and they don't help to keep all communities safe. So instead, we should be moving away from cash bail because it only focuses harm on people who can't afford to pay rather than on things like likelihood of, of appearing for trial. And we should be rejecting algorithms and risk assessment systems that can't be affirmatively proven to enhance fairness and equal justice. And so, you know, an action is, Call your police department, call your town hall or city hall, ask what systems they're, they're using, demand transparency, and challenge those systems that have a discriminatory effect in, in practice and oppose them. So you're an unusual figure in that you've done both domestic and international human rights work. And I'm wondering at this current moment, what are some ways in which we can reflect on trends in the international arena and what strategies can we adopt? Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing a global swing towards authoritarianism and disrespect for human rights and international systems. This week, the Trump administration is you know, taking steps to remove the United States from the World Health Organization, astonishingly at a time in which a global pandemic is killing tens of thousands of people in the United States and many more around the world, and we need each other. And so, you know, within our own country here in the U.S., I think we need to be advocating uh, moving towards those systems, human rights, public health, development systems that reflect the values of community, the idea that we're all in it together, that we're living in an increasingly interconnected world, and the, the events of the last six months, including the 
COVID-19 pandemic, but also issues of global climate change and other dynamics, make clear that we can't go it alone, that that go it alone strategy is simply not working. Fortunately, we have international systems as well as domestic systems that enable us to work together to uphold human rights and human dignity as well as protecting public health and public safety. So uh, amongst those, in addition to the, the WHO, is our international system of human rights, which the United States helped to create after World War II and the horrors of, of the Holocaust. Um, but almost immediately began to walk away from in uh, important and troubling ways. So we need to be advocating, number one, to get better educated about international human rights and why they matter, again, from a standpoint of values as well as problem solving and solutions. We need to lean in to uh, things like, in this moment, the, uh, the highest attainable standard of health, which is an international human right. The understanding in the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, for example, to which the United States is a party, that laws and policies that are discriminatory in practice are violations of human rights and need to be abandoned and replaced. This is a, a moment for us to be uh, owning and upholding those values and human rights here at home and so that we have the ability to both to solve problems here and the moral authority to talk about the global systems that we need in order to thrive as a, a society in the 21st century. Many of us rightly criticizing China for its uh, denials of human rights in Hong Kong and on mainland China, uh, but we are disrespecting and violating those human rights and that human rights system here at home. So part of our effort for greater social justice and inclusion and equity and community ought to be an embrace, an advocacy of those international human rights and health and safety systems that we already have and that were hard fought coming out of the, the hard lessons of World War II and the Holocaust and the Great Depression. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alan. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Sushma. It's really been a pleasure. This podcast is produced at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Learn more about our work at carrcenter.hks.harvard.edu and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like what you hear, you can tune into more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us.